gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. It's Friday morning. Uh, this is my second take because the first take I was first distracted. I'm in a distracted sort of mood, so I think there will be um, ample opportunities for. So, like Mike Pence's fly is in my office, and this is the thing that I gave up on the first take on was to try and go kill it, but then I couldn't find it, and now it's back and it is harassing me. So if every now and then I just say shoe fly or look cows or whatever, it's because I'm in a distracted state of mind. I got a lot of stuff going on and I'm in one of those places where I'm thinking X percent of the time and X equals a hundred. So where to begin? Well, I mentioned Mike Pence. So let's talk about Mike Pence for a second. I haven't watched the whole speech that he gave uh, in New Hampshire about the difference between populism and conservatism. And I did not know that he was going to um, give that speech. I mean, I knew he was going to give a speech. I didn't know the substance of it when I wrote Wednesday's G-File, which covered a considerable amount of the same territory. Now, the, the difference between us is that when he says conservatism isn't the same thing as populism, um, he's saying it awfully late. And I've been saying it for 20 years. Um, and, and again, I've, I've never, you know, I've never been like some purist on this, that you can't have any populism mixed in with conservatism or Republican politics or any of that kind of stuff. You know, this is a boisterous, exuberant country. Um, I've been a broken record on this idea that all poisons are determined by the dose. So a little bit of populism, a little bit of orneriness, a little bit of, uh, you know, a little tax protest here, a little, uh, you know, civil rights protest there. That kind of stuff, I think, is, 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 is part of a sort of a part of the healthy, uh, diverse diet of, a, of civil society. And it's unavoidable, Right. But my point of all has always been that populism taken to its own logical conclusions or its own irrational, passionate conclusions is in many ways the antithesis of, of conservatism, both capital C sort of ideological conservatism and small C, say, temperamental institutional conservatism, insofar as um, populism elevates passion over reason. Um, it is inherently anti-intellectual. Um, you've heard me do this shtick a thousand times, so I'm not going to repeat the whole thing. Pence made, you know, made similar points, adjacent points. Um, as we talked about on the Dispatch podcast uh, yesterday, which should be up now, um, I'm very sympathetic to Steve's point of view um, insofar as it's always better when people who've been wrong start, who people who've been saying wrong things start saying right things. People who had the wrong position move towards the right position. Now, of course, we think our positions on this kind of stuff are right. Otherwise, as Ramesh would say, they wouldn't be our positions. I think a lot of listeners know what I mean. It's like if, if, if you've been supporting irresponsible 
um, at times dangerous trends in American politics and you stop, that's good and you shouldn't be condemned for it. And there are a lot of people who, the te- for whom the temptation to say, now you're saying this, right? After you've, re- you know, you rode the Trump train for a really long time um, and you're not doing well in the polls now. And all of a sudden it feels more like a desperation play than some sort of uh, cry from the heart of, of conviction. Again, you don't have to be purist on this kind of thing. Politics, in politics, it's often a desperation play to actually start telling the truth, right? It is often a sign of you've got nothing left to lose, so you might as well speak with conviction. And I'm not trying to be overly harsh on on Pence. I do think he's, I think Kevin was a little too hard on him um, in his thing. And we'll have that debate anon or soon. Does anon mean soon? I can't remember. Anyway, it just feels, so this gets at this sort of inherent tension, right? Of between substantive analysis, substantive political analysis, which is a little different than substantive philosophical or, I don't know, analysis on the merits of the, of the, of people's positions and, you know, sort of punditry stuff. What do I mean by this? Um, on the merits, I think Pence is right in the things that he's saying about how conservatism and populism aren't the same thing, that Donald Trump, what, you know, the conservative movement and the Republican Party didn't start the day Donald Trump came down the escalator, all those kinds of things. I'm glad to hear him say it. Uh, I don't know that it's going to do a lot of good. So like on the substance, on the philosophical substance or on the analytical substance, I think he is largely right and correct as a matter of the sort of the punditry or political analysis or the, the meta analysis of where all this works is like, don't, it's, it's, it's not going to work out for him. I don't think it's going to ignite a movement around him. I am not convinced that a different candidate than Mike Pence couldn't garner more support for this kind of message. I'm not convinced that, say, Nikki Haley couldn't make the spirited defense of pre-Trump Reaganism and it would work for her. Um, not because she would be a more authentic salesperson of that message. Pence is about as authentic a salesperson person of that message as you're going to get in this field, given his true love and devotion to all things Reagan. But simply because Nikki Haley's a, a more charismatic personality, you know, and what is it Samuel L. Jackson says about what's his face, the pig and in, in Pulp Fiction, you know, personality goes a long way. Uh, personality matters more than I would like, but it does, you know, and Pence's personality. I think there's just something not inspiring about his always more in sorrow than in anger He's sort of like a, a very upstanding president of a Christian university who has to go, you know, walk in and chastise students for getting too raucous. That sort of tone, I just don't think plays really well. And it plays particularly poorly given that he was Donald Trump's wingman for so long. So I think, you know, I, I, mean, I wish that the substance of messages was all that really had influence and power in American politics or in politics in general. It just, just doesn't, you know, I mean, there is no substance um, to 90% of the stuff that Trump says um, and his biggest fans don't care. The substance in Vivek Ramaswamy's stuff is just self-contradicting garbage, but he's getting a following. Um, it's the nature of politics. 
I'm glad that Pence is saying this stuff. I wish he had said it earlier. I wish he had realized it earlier. You know, the on this topic of populism is a problem for the right. Um, I have just an enormous sack of I told you so's I could be pulling out anytime I wanted um, and never using the same one twice about how often and how many times and how many different ways I've said this stuff. So I, I just have very mixed feelings about this. I did see this item, I think it was in The Messenger, that Pence had said he was pushing back on the suggestion that abortion hurt the Republican Party. And he had some line about how I categorically reject that. I don't believe that at all. Something like that. I don't, again, I don't think he is lying. But I think it's, you know, this raises a sort of interesting point about what politics is sort of for for some people. I know lots of pro-lifers who, I, if I explained to them exactly what would happen, or if I even painted an even more dispiriting picture about what would happen post-Dobbs, right? That if, if, if Roe is overturned, then the GOP will find that will we'll kind of fracture but, and over the issue of abortion and won't know how to talk about it. And Democrats will get gains um, in all sorts of places and it'll become a winning issue for Democrats, if I could, if I could paint that picture to a lot of pro-lifers, they would have said, "Get rid of Roe anyway." This idea that forget what your own personal position is on abortion. Let's say you're a hundred percent pro-choice or a hundred percent pro-life. The idea that your position on abortion has to make for good politics is um, a kind of a—it's kind of a sign of intellectual corruption. Right. It is part of this part of the cult of the unity of all good things that everything right goes together with everything else that is right. And you can never have contradiction in this life. Um, and so the principled position on abortion for pro-lifers, it seems to me, is not I don't believe that it's bad for Republicans. The principled position for pro-lifers is I don't care if it's bad for Republicans. Similarly, if you're if you're adamantly pro-choice, the position is, it isn't, well, this is a great issue for Democrats or that, or even that, well, maybe it's your position should be that the Democrats should use this as an issue because you want to secure abortion rights. That's all fine for politics. But if you're really adamant about this stuff, you should say, I don't care if it's a bad issue for the Democrats. It's important and the right thing to do. And this applies to all sorts of things. I mean, there are a lot Democrats who are absolutely convinced on the maximalist arguments about climate change. That's fine. I think they're wrong about the maximalist arguments, but I don't think they're wrong directionally about climate change. And we don't need to get back into the weeds of all that. Um, but principled position, which is the party should, should do what it can to fight climate change, and then there's this prudential question, right? Which is, well, if it's bad for the party, then maybe we shouldn't pursue the maximalist position if we're not going to be able to persuade anybody. Or even worse, if taking the maximalist position actually helps people who are on the opposite side of this issue. Right? So that's the way uh, abortion politics has worked for a very long time. When Democrats are defending the maximalist position, you know, third trimester, partial birth abortion, all that kind of stuff, they lose and lose badly. When Republicans are defending the maximalist position on abortion, 
Life begins at conception, no exceptions for rape or incest, you know, banning, you know, even, you know, birth control used to be an argument that's not really anymore. Republicans lose that argument. And so one of the things that you need to separate in your mind is the prudential, right? How do we make incremental progress towards the ideal position, right? Because, and remember, ideals are called ideals for a reason. You never actually reach them. They just simply point the direction in which you should go. This is why I've, you know, I said last week, I say every week pretty much that I'm an idealist about ends in foreign policy, but I'm a realist about means. Um, the same should apply to all sorts of questions in life. If you want, if you want to follow a North Star, fine, that's your ideal. You never reach your North Star, right? What is it the guy, the ethicist said? Uh, I can't remember his name. I've written about it a bunch. Uh, there was this rabbi, this Jewish ethicist who was a famous sort of moral and ethical scholar, leader, whatever, who also was quite a philanderer in his private life. And he was asked about the contradiction. And he said, hey, look, the sign pointing towards Boston doesn't go there. I can sort of mock the cop out that that is about your own personal behavior while at the same time acknowledging that he was right. And so far as we're all flawed, we're never going to be perfect. We're never going to live up to all of our ideals all the time in every instance. But that doesn't mean getting rid of your ideals in the name of um, a self-indulgent kind of anti-hypocrisy ideology. What it says is, is that you try. And so on things like abortion, climate change, all these things, too much of the party, both parties are captured by, in effect, ideologues. And I got no problem with ideologues. I've spent most of my life defending ideologues and ideology, and I consider myself something of an ideologue myself. But an ideologue who's, who's categorical about means, not just ends, is just going to be sort of spinning their wheels and not having any actual influence. And I think that is absolutely fine for people who are writers, intellectuals, philosophers, blah, 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 blah. The closer you get to wanting to be relevant towards politics, um, the more you have to take that stuff into account. Now, weirdly, this has all worked out pretty well to be a good preface for talking about the Tom Nichols episode from the other day. I have gotten so much feedback about that episode. A lot of the comments were just very positive about how great it was to listen to two people disagree civilly and blah, 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 blah. And that's great. Happy to do that. A lot of the comments weren't like that. A lot of the comments were quite harsh on Tom. And I like Tom personally. Uh, I don't know him super well. I didn't want to go like hammers and tongs and make things a, a, a unpleasant conversation. It's not really what I try to do here. You know, I tell every first time guest that this is not strictly speaking a journalistic enterprise insofar as, you know, I'm not here to embarrass or get, you know, the guest, you know, um, even though that would be good for the business model, gets listeners and clicks and, and buzz and all that kind of stuff. But I just don't, I, I, I don't want to do that most of the time. And so I don't. You know, I tell guests that if they mess up an answer and they want to do over, um, we can do that. If I if I, I tell them that if uh, if I ask them something that is going to create real problems for them to even address, I say just tell me and we'll cut out me asking. 
And I have literally never done that with one exception that I can think of. Uh, a friend who was on, had a baby, didn't want the world to know the name and or that the baby was here, wanted to keep it private. And I said, okay. And we cut that out. That's it. I've never, so like before people go all crazy about how I've um, done this grave disservice to, to, to listeners by giving people editorial control over this podcast, it's never actually happened. I say that to put people at ease to know that they can have sort of an honest conversation with me and have them relax and, they've, and it's never come up. But I said it to Tom and by no means did he say, oh, cut that out or anything like that. I'm just giving you a context about how I approach a lot of these things. So anyway, I don't want to get into a big, here's why Tom is wrong, here's why I'm right kind of thing. Uh, I certainly don't want to seem like I am accusing anybody of bad faith because I don't think Tom argued in bad faith at all. I think he sincerely believes everything he believes. Instead, let me just sort of talk about this as uh, at a level of generality ascribing. I mean, this is one of the problems I think the two of us had when we were talking is that like I was conflating his position with the position of a lot of people of the sort of MSNBC bulwark kind of universe of anti-Trump people, some of whom I consider friends and who I like a lot. I like Charlie Sykes a lot. I like, you know, I like a lot of people over there. That's fine. That's not my point. You know, I've been friends with Bill Crystal for a very long time and I'll stay friends with Bill Crystal for a very long time. I got my disagreements. But you could kind of feel it when I brought up people like Nicole Wallace with, with Tom or Jen Rubin. Uh, he's very comfortable with their transformations. I'm not. I'm not saying, you know, they're bad people, but I find that you need to do, you need to show more work if you're actually going to change your positions on a whole bunch of discrete policy issues that touch on your deepest convictions in particular. You can't just overnight go the other way on those things without showing your math, right? And explaining how this isn't a conversion for political purposes only or for career purposes only. And I'm not saying that that's what happened with all these people. And I don't think it's as cut and dry like that for a lot of people. But if you want to have credibility, you know, here's the, here's a basic problem. And I'm not talking about anybody in particular. Okay. This is a general proposition that people can assign names to however they see fit. If you are going to take a position that is at odds with the Republican party, with, with conservatives today, with the right, however you want to say it, if you're going to take a position that is a tough love position that let's just sort of stipulate is the correct position on the merits. If you want to sort of say, as I said, you may have noticed once or twice I've mentioned this, that I think Trump is bad and unfit for office. If you want to trade on your status as a conservative, when you say these kinds of things, it seems to me that you need to be very clear that you're still a conservative, that you're still willing to take grief from the other side for the other things that conservatives, you think conservatives should believe and that you believe. If you change all your positions on everything, then you lose the ability to trade on the fact that you're a conservative about anything if you're going to take unpopular positions and these tough love positions. And I think that there are people out there who sort of do the Lincoln Project Act that the only people they're trying to convince that they are still conscience-ridden, real conservatives are liberal donors. 
and not actually, and liberal television producers and that kind of thing, they're not actually trying to persuade conservatives to, you know, mend their ways. They are performatively saying things that Nicole Wallace's audience wants to hear. And I don't like that. And I don't like it on the merits, and I don't like it as a political strategy. So let's just talk about this for a second in, again, broad brushstrokes. If you listen to the Tom Nichols, the second half of the Tom Nichols episode, you'll understand why I'm doing this because I think I was probably insufficiently clear in the distinctions I was trying to make. And I think he was also, I, I think I had an articulation problem and he had a listening problem on some of this. And so we ended up talking past each other a little bit. So there are these distinctions that I think are really important. And I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of making distinctions. I think distinctions are the essence of, of intellectual work. It is very, very easy to compare one thing to another thing if you don't care about the ways in which the analogy falls short. Everything can be like Nazi Germany if you don't define your terms, make your distinctions, explain why certain things are similar and certain things are dissimilar and those dissimilarities are important. Um, it's one of the reasons why I've... You know, I, I hate the phrase apples and oranges. I mean, I use it because people know what it means. But we say apples and oranges. Uh, you know, there's different as apples and oranges. You're confusing apples and oranges. We make it sound like apples and oranges are these incredibly different things. And yet, if you... Uh, damn fly. Um, if you took a random basket of 10,000 common objects and sorted them based upon their similarities, apples and oranges would be right next to each other, very far away from carburetors and, um, and, and brushes for washing dishes and pacemakers and uh, hearing aids and light bulbs, right? I mean, they're, and light bulbs would actually be fairly close to the apples and oranges because they're kind of spherical, right? Apples and oranges are both fruit that come from trees. Uh, they both have high sugar content. They're both round. They're both fruit that humans regularly eat. They're probably in the top five produce products sold in America. I mean, you can come up with a list of similarities between apples and oranges that is actually much longer than the list of dissimilarities. So anyway, I bring this up because I'm kind of goofy this morning and um, and just to say that distinctions matter. So there are a bunch of different distinctions to be made. One is the role of the individual, right? The individual, and I, I'm going to use the word intellectual here, even though I don't like to call myself an intellectual, it just feels friggin' pretentious. Um, um, I don't even really, you know, like I feel weird when I say things like as a writer and that kind of thing, but you know, it's like what other word am I going to use for myself? Um, so, but like as an intellectual's job, is to tell the truth. Now, getting back to these ideals things, many, many, many of the most famous intellectuals in the world have fallen short of that ideal, right? Uh, a lot of them get compromised. They get, in, they get 
concerned about their relevance and their status. They try to get too clever. They come up with ideas that they don't entirely believe are true, but they want to believe are true, or they think will help sell books, and they get you know too clever by half and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying I'm immune to those kinds of things. I think that kind of motivated reasoning is just one of the dangers. But by and large, the role of an intellectual, it's not the only role is to tell the truth. It's also to, you know, if you're going to take, I don't know, like the Alan Bloom distinction, um, I think it's Alan Bloom between, or Leo Strauss distinction between intellectuals and philosophers. You know, philosophers are secluded creatures that do not care about contemporary relevance. They care about this timeless conversation uh, between the great minds over the millennia that takes place in some sort of astral plane where people are speaking, the living are speaking with the dead and vice versa. And it's all very abstract and wonderful and glorious. Um, while intellectuals are more like synthesizers and popularizers. I sometimes think of intellectuals, at least the kind of intellectual I like, to, the, the paradigm of an intellectual I like to lean into is a little bit like Jeff Goldblum's uh, Seth Brundle character in The Fly. If you never saw the remake of The Fly, Brundle's, he's like, look, I'm not a, I'm not a genius scientist or anything. I just know a lot, and this is a total paraphrase, but I know a lot of genius scientists and I take their stuff and I figure out ways to connect it all to each other and make it work together. Um, this is very similar to like Matt Ridley's explanation of the difference between an inventor and an innovator, which we talked about on this podcast a few years ago. Anyway, I very openly, honestly, like to flit about from different schools of thought, different periods of history, and grab things that I think are shiny and interesting and bring them back to my nest. And that's how I operate. And um, for good or for ill, you know, I'm too... It's too late to change. I like intellectually being a jack of all trades and a master of none. And this is not to say I'm a jack of every trade, but you get the point. But so the role of the intellectual in political world is a slightly different thing. Intellectual and political world, you're trying to make an influence on the direction of politics and the political conversation towards something that you think is better, not worse, right? That gets you really close to this problem of of relevance in the political conversation. This might just be me to a certain extent. And I'm not saying that necessarily this makes me better than other people. It may make me dumber than a lot of people. I don't know. But I've never really liked, the. I've never really been comfortable, super comfortable with the relevance stuff. I mean, yeah, it's flattering when some senator or congressman says that they read you or they listen to your podcast and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I've, I've had, you know, or it's kind of cool when someone reads from your column into the Senate record. That's cool. I mean, I get it. It's flattering. It's, it's neat. But I, like, don't like giving politicians political advice. You know, this has happened many times in the past where they say, what do you think I should do here? And I'm like, eh, I just don't like it. Now, I know a gazillion intellectual types who are honorable, decent, morally upstanding, ethical people with integrity who love that stuff, love it. They think that's what their real job is. You know, I mean, I've been, again, I've been friends with Bill Crystal for years. I have been friendly about it, but I've been critical of the Bill Crystal model for a long time. I think the first time I wrote about this was like 
late 90s. You know, I've heard something in a G file called, you know, the irony of Bill Crystal. And just insofar as like he's a political player who's also a journalist. And uh, this is hardly unique to Bill Crystal. People want to make it sound like he is like this unique string puller and stuff. And that gets into all sorts of other nasty and unfair things. But, you know, publishers of little magazines have always been editors of little magazines have always had this role with politics. Um, it was true of the New Republic when it was founded, right? It was founded to be um, sort of the intellectual avant-garde for Teddy Roosevelt, but Teddy Roosevelt lost, so they became the sort of brain trust for Woodrow Wilson. In fact, I, you know, that's the, I think that's been the role of the New Republic in one way or another from its founding, is to sort of be part of the democratic political strategy complex. Lord knows William F. Buckley kept a foot in both worlds, right? He even ran for mayor. You know, George Will, who I have bottomless admiration for, routinely talks to, holds salons with politicians and that kind of thing. It's just not me. I don't get, I don't like it. And I will say this about George. He knows himself well enough that he has been sort of uncorruptible by proximity to powerful people. He criticized Reagan, even though he was tight with Reagan. You know, I mean, he, he left the GOP because of Trump. And to be fair, look, Bill Crystal could have been a major player in the Trump universe and chose not to for matters having to do with ethics and morality and, and integrity. And I, I salute him for it. But I just don't like mixing the two. Other people don't mind it. They like doing it. They draw their ethical line. It's not an ethical thing so much as it's just, it's, I like bright lines on this stuff and it just makes me uncomfortable. That sort of gets a little bit at what I'm talking about, the, about an intellectual. The problem is I've talked about a zillion times before. I think a lot of conservatives on the right, a lot of conservatives, particularly in Washington, particularly who get caught up in the sort of Fox News vortex and that kind of thing, they start convincing themselves that part of the job of being a conservative is being a de facto political consultant or political strategist for the GOP. And that's where you start getting into trouble. It's one thing to make an argument that the GOP should do X because X is right. It's another thing to make an argument that the GOP should do X because that can help the GOP win. Now, it's fine on a day-to-day -day specific thing if the, the X you're talking about is also right, but it gets easier and easier over time to just sort of say the GOP should do this because you should help them win or because my readers or my listeners or my viewers believe X. So therefore, it's my job to translate the desires of this increasingly populist audience into an articulable agenda that the GOP must follow. And I think that that is a really dangerous seduction. Um, that's what's happening, in my opinion, to the leadership of the Heritage Foundation, which is basically not showing leadership, it's showing followership. It's the plight of what happened to a lot of talk radio. People just started, you know, it's, it's what a lot of those, um, and sometimes it's, you know, it's not the masses. Often it is, particularly if you have a fundraising model that's based on large numbers of small donations. But it can also be a form of donor capture, you know, higher up. And I think, you know, I mean, the Claremont Review of Books I got my criticisms. I think it is, and it, they've published some things in recent years that I think were a travesty. But uh, my understanding that Charles Kessler keeps a kind of a 
cordon sanitaire between the, the journal and the Institute, but from the Institute's, from the public behavior of the Institute as a separate from the, from the journal, I think the Claremont Institute has become a disaster, but like the people that they have brought in there as Lincoln fellows and that kind of thing who, you know, it's amazing how many end up being, you know, revealing themselves as, as bigots and thugs almost to the point where you start to think, gosh, maybe, maybe there isn't a randomness to this. Anyway, where was I going? Oh, so anyway, I think the Claremont Institute is another one of these things that has basically decided it's, it's in the business of pandering to a certain set of passions and fueling a certain set of passions rather than actually dedicating itself to, you know, ideals about statesmanship, which is allegedly what it was founded to do. So anyway, there's this incestuousness problem that I think can color your thinking about politics of the day. It's like, can I say, will I get in trouble with my biggest fans if I say X? Will I get in trouble with my biggest fans if I don't say Y? How will this affect uh, the next election if people, you know, one of the things I think a lot of columnists do, a lot of writers do, is they make the mistake of their own relevance. And this is, sometimes this can be sort of an inverted form of, of high ethics or high integrity. You get to this position where you say, in effect, what if everybody was persuaded by what I am writing? What then should I write? In an interesting way, it, it's an interesting exercise. And I'm not saying it's a, it's a, I'm, 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 I'm not saying there's anything immoral or unethical about that exercise. The problem with that exercise is you start thinking you have a lot more power to do things than you actually do, right? If you think, oh my God, it'd be a good Twilight Zone episode. What if like some columnist woke up one day who was a usual brick thrower and that nobody listened to or a thumb sucker that nobody listened to or something in between and all of a sudden, 80, 90% of the American people agreed with whatever he wrote. Like what would you start writing uh, if you had that awesome power? The good news is that no one has that awesome power. But if you think in those terms, if you approach politics in those terms, you start thinking about how am I going to manipulate the issue, right? How am I, how am I going to frame the issue? What is good for my team if I write it this way versus that way? And I'm not saying you can't have any of that mindset when you're writing because it's sort of unavoidable, but sometimes it goes to people's heads that turns intellectuals into essentially politicians, right? Because you're now talking about how am I going to influence the vote? How am I going to influence political donations and the polls and these kinds of things? And I think there's, there's some intellectual dishonesty in that, but there is also a lot of intellectual self-deception in that. And that, that, that yearning for or delusion of greater relevance than you have. And I'll just give you an example that's relevant to all of this. You may recall a couple of years ago, shortly after the January 6th stuff, there was this brief argument between the sort of dispatch crowd and the bulwark crowd about whether we should burn the GOP down, right? Should we burn it all down? I took the position, David French took the position 
I can't remember who else was here that was writing about this stuff at the time, that it's an utterly fruitless line of debate. It's basically a dead end because we can't burn it down. Like, we have no power to burn it down. We're not going to persuade people to burn it down. And so thinking about whether we should or shouldn't burn it down is a waste of everybody's time. And so this sort of like, like gets me, so like you can have a, I perfectly happen to have a philosophical, you know, you know, debate uh, on the merits about whether or not it would be a good thing to burn down the GOP and start over. That's fine. But as a prudential matter, as a matter of where to devote our energies and our arguments and all these kinds of things, it's, it's just a waste of time to have the argument, right? Beyond that. Um, and that sort of brings me to this sort of the Tom Nichols stuff. You know, I asked Tom, why are some folks in his branch of this very small universe of uh, anti-Trump or never Trump, I don't care about the label, um, right-wingers, why are people more on his side of that faction such cheap dates? And he kind of bristled at the question. And all I meant by it and all I mean by it is that if you're going to get into the business of indulging in politics, if you're going to start saying that you're a, that you have to vote for, and we'll get to this vote stuff in a second, you have to vote for Biden because the Republicans need to go. You have to vote for all Democrats because the Republicans need to lose so much that they learn their lessons and they, they, they return to sanity and all that kind of stuff. That's fine. I mean, I, I have some disagreements with it, but it is a serviceable, intellectually consistent position. Uh, doesn't mean I necessarily agree with it, but it's, it's a defensible one. It's an understandable one. But if you're going to get in the business of politics, right, of not just reflexively voting against Republicans, but in essence being, for all intents and purposes, Democrats, why just go with the flow about everything that the Democrats do? Now, I, again, I warned you there's going to be a lot of distinction making here. This is a two-pronged question. Because on the one hand, it's the question of the role of the intellectual, as we discussed earlier, right? And two, it's the role of the intellectual in the arena who wants to be involved in politics and thinks in terms of their relevance to the political debate and motivating voting behavior and all these kinds of things. They're not the same thing. If you're going to have simple, if you're simply going to wear the role of truth-telling intellectual, again, for want of better terms, you have a real problem if you're a conservative and you're not calling out Biden's unconstitutional nonsense with uh, the rent moratorium or the student loan stuff, um, or just a, as approach to executive orders in general, right? If you're a national security conservative and you're not calling out and criticizing the Afghan withdrawal, it's a problem. If you're going to go around saying that Republicans are such hypocrites, I believe in fiscal responsibility, the Republicans used to, but now it's clear that they don't anymore, 
And you don't say, and oh, by the way, the debt's going up to $2 trillion or the deficit's going up to $2 trillion under Joe Biden. Um, and that's terrible. Then you got you have a problem as, as a role as an intellectual about just telling the truth as you see it. And then there's like the political relevance problem. If you want to be politically relevant and all of these kinds of things, this is the part that I mean by a cheap date, less than the intellectual integrity thing. Simply saying, because Trump is bad, I am going to give my vote and my silence. And I'm not saying that this is Tom's position. Go back. I'm not trying to be unfair to Tom in particular. He denies that this is his position and he has good evidence to the contrary. But I'm talking about directionally. There's this approach from people on the sort of, the sort of, uh, the Jen Rubin faction, let's call it that. Uh, the, I don't want to beat up on Jen Rubin because I don't want to talk about Jen Rubin. Um, but you know what I'm talking about, the, the, the sort of anti-Trump conservatives and former Republicans who speak almost exclusively to Democrats and liberals because conservatives, rightly or wrongly, aren't listening, right? And I know I've, I have a lot of conservative friends or readers who say I'm one of those people. I can tell you, just go look at the comments to the Tom Nichols thing. Uh, it's a different audience um, here. That's the conversation for another day. Anyway. The cheap date part goes to the nature of politics. If you're going to be a player in the, in the arena, and I'm not saying this makes you a hack or anything like that. Yes, there are plenty of people who are hacks, and we can have a long conversation about that. But I don't think it necessarily makes you a hack. I don't think Bill Crystal, you know, when he, when he was running the Weekly Standard and doing all these things, or even now is, is, is a hack. That's not what I mean. I don't think William F. Buckley was a hack. I think that they want to be in the arena doing a mix of both politics and journalism. And, and that's a choice. It's not a choice I love, but it's a choice. And it's just not a choice. It's not a choice for me. But if you're going to be in that space, I don't understand why you have to give up all of your... <sighs> leverage is the wrong word, right? But like, first of all, if you believe certain things are true, you should still... You should... And the Democratic Party is now your party... You should do your best to get the Democratic Party to reflect more of your views than it did when you weren't a Democrat. If you're a pro-lifer and you become a Democrat, it seems to me you have two choices. You can immorally give up for political reasons being a pro-lifer, or you can do what you can as a prudential matter to make the Democratic Party a little better on, on this issue than it would be without your support. But also, if you are a conservative and you actually believe to one extent or another, and I have never met a conservative who doesn't believe this to one extent or another, that one of the reasons why the GOP went as crazy as it did was because it was a reaction to how crazy they perceived the Democratic Party going. And every conservative I know, wherever they come down on the, this, these Trump issues, every conservative I know, thinks, as, as Tom Nichols was saying the other day, is that people like Cori Bush and the squad are just a gift to Republicans. Every Democrat who says the phrase defund the police is giving an in-kind donation to the Republican Party. And so what is the harm in trying to bring the Democratic Party to its senses. You know who's working really hard at doing stuff like that? Paul Begala. Paul Begala is trying, it's not very public, but he's the head of some group that is trying to get moderate, non-woke, old-fashioned, sort of somewhere between FDR and, and Kennedy or 
Truman Democrats elected because, and, you know, in no way or shape or form is Paul Magala a right of center guy, but he recognizes that it's bad for the Democratic Party and bad for the country for the Democratic Party to veer off and to become beholden to a very small sliver of very sort of woke white liberals and the and the the sort of uh, professional identity politics practitioners uh, live in that world, and that it would be much better for the Democratic Party and therefore much better for the country if the Democratic Party became more centrist, more moderate, more traditionally, uh, you know, a sort of you know definitely a bigger government than I would like, but a a sort of Clintonian on the policy stuff party. And he's working to do that. I do not understand why, if you are for totally understandable and justifiable reasons, by my lights, saying a pox on the entire edifice of the Republican Party and the conservative movement, I have to go live in this other coalition now. I don't understand why, as a political matter, you can't make that coalition, try to make that coalition better. And what Tom kept doing, and I, 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 at some one point I had to say, you keep saying that, is he kept rejecting this position that I did not articulate, which was that if you don't, like, he thinks it's folly to say, if you don't do what I want, what I want on this, that, or the other thing, I'm not going to give you my vote. I don't know how many times I have to say on this podcast over the last you know, what is it, five years, I don't give a rat's ass about my vote. It's not my argument. There are other people who have those arguments. That's fine. It's not my argument. My argument is, is like, if you want to be a player in the field of, in the world of ideas and you want to make the country a better place and you sincerely and honestly believe that you're helping Trump every time the Democratic Party veers left, maybe make those arguments to help the Democratic Party move right. Now, there are, there are definitely going to be credibility problems for conservatives who join the Democratic Party and still make conservative arguments. And they're not going to be popular among, you know, people on the left. And so as a, I'm not, I'm not saying this is why she does it. For all I know, her conversion is entirely sincere. But Nicole Wallace, who's for a long time a Republican, you know, major Republican operative, you have no hint other than through declarations of contrition and begging for forgiveness in a way that she was ever a Republican. On issue after issue, she, you know, when the Southern Poverty Law Center comes out with a report, it's always breaking news on her show. You know, it's like every show begins with breaking news. And then you find out that the breaking news is a Washington Post story from five days ago that's bad for Trump. So I get why, as a personal sort of matter, it doesn't really suit your interests to talk about how the Democratic Party would be better if it was less left wing, but both as the role of uh, sort of an intellectual or a journalist, whatever label you want to put on it, an honest commentator, and as a conservative, if that's what you still call yourself, but also as a political player, I don't think it suits the purposes of the causes that these people profess to hold dear to be a cheap date. And, you know, when Tom says that even voting for Susan Collins is grave moral error or whatever it was, he got, just kind of loses me. Look, I mean, I, I get the argument. And again, if you think that you have the power to burn it all down and all that kind of stuff or persuade people to burn it all down, 
maybe you can run with that. But I think punishing the decent people in the Republican Party for being unsuccessful at thwarting the indecent people in the Republican Party doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And if you listen to a lot of people who made those arguments over the last five years, up until January 5th, 2021, they would have excommunicated Liz Cheney. Because Liz Cheney is a decent person. She was much more nuanced about her position on Trump. And then January 6th was the last straw. And, I, and again, going back to like the Pence stuff, I do not begrudge people who come to the right conclusion sincerely but late, right? And she's been heroic since then. But treating everybody who, you know, like, you know, should we vote out Mitt Romney, you know, who at no point bent into the, you know, at no point, you know, caved to this stuff? Uh, I don't think so. You know, I mean, Mitt Romney gave his speech about Donald Trump in 2016, you know, seven years before Mike Pence gave his speech about Trump. Um, should we vote him out of office? I think that would be crazy. Maybe someone will let me know. I cannot bring myself to watch it. But Mitt Romney, talking about Mitt Romney just reminded me of this. Uh, I saw this, like, so we got my, I finally got my cable upgraded. And so it, it's annoying. But uh, if you don't fully turn off the thing, if you just turn off the cable box, you get this, you get these still pictures promoting various TV shows, sort of like a screensaver coming up on my TV. And I caught this one for, Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. And, you know, it's that group shot and it's, I don't know, six or seven women, very, you know, most very attractive and most, you know, sort of provocatively dressed, short skirts, long legs, that kind of thing. A couple in, you know, like purportedly sexier gowns kind of thing that are a little more flattering to figures that need flattering and that kind of stuff. And Lord knows I'm not throwing stones at, at, the, at the need for sympathetic lighting for one's physique. But um, what the hell is like, like, so I looked at it and it was like, these people don't look like members of the Church of Latter-day Saints because I didn't think you were allowed to dress like that um, for the most part. I mean, maybe some of the ones with the long gowns can get away with it. But I don't know how you do Real Housewives of Salt Lake City without having a high quotient of LDSers in it. And then what good is that? I mean, is so is, is one of the women going to get pissed off at one of the other women and throw apple juice in her face? I don't know. I just, I mean, I'm almost, almost tempted to watch uh, since we're now clearly in potpourri uh, phase. I love, there was this clip. So Peter Navarro, who I think is a pretty good example of an, you know, before I was talking about, you know, how you sort of navigate these waters to be an intellectual who's involved in politics and have integrity. Some of the, e one of the easiest ways to think through some of these things is not to ask yourself, what would George Will do? Because George Will is a guy who knows who he is, is an incredibly rigorous thinker, can spot his own defensible bright lines and stay on his side of them without compromising anything, despite being famously friends with politicians and all that. Sometimes a better way to think about this, a better heuristic, as it were, is uh, 
ask yourself, what would someone like Peter Navarro do and then do the opposite? Because Peter Navarro is just an utterly intellectually corrupt hack. And this was true before he went in Trump orbit. Uh, if you ever get a chance, go back and read Kevin Williamson's stuff on Navarro. It's great. I'm pretty sure Navarro, in at least one, if not more of his books, came up with a pseudonym for himself that was like his name backwards or something like that. And whenever he was making an assertion that needed, you know, external validation from an expert, he would quote this made up sort of John Barron-like expert to sort of get his back on the point he was trying to make. As even Gredge Glog Hanaj says, this is a bad idea. You know, whatever. And Gredge Glog Hanaj is Jonah Goldberg backwards. Um, anyway, there was this great moment where, uh, you know, so he got convicted for contempt of Congress yesterday and uh, sentencing, sentencing could be up to two years. I, I very much doubt he'll get anything like that. But there was this great moment where his lawyers are coming to the microphone to give their response to the verdict and the lawyer just deadpans, look, today was just a necessary step towards our eventual successful appeal. <laughs> and someone in the crowd yells, you lost. And somebody, I don't think it was a lawyer, mutters, someone didn't get the joke. I think it's hilarious. I think it is hilarious. Like, I, I don't know anything about this lawyer, but yes, it is absolutely true. You cannot have a successful appeal unless you first get convicted of something. <laughs> you know, it's like you can't get paroled unless you first go to prison. So if I rob a liquor store and get sent to prison, I'll be telling people, look, this is this is just a necessary first step until my parole. Oh, I'm sorry. I, so I, I, this vote thing, I've, I said I was going to address it. I don't know if I actually fully did. A bunch of people in the comments didn't like it, including my friend Steve Gordon. I don't know really what to say beyond what I have already said a zillion times on this, except to say... I think the heuristic, I think the, the mental gimmick of how would you vote, right? Which is this like perfectly legitimate question. I'm not, but it's also, it's a legitimate question. It's also a bit of a debater's trick insofar as it reduces a complex argument to a binary. And some people think that's, say exactly, that's what it does. The reason why I say I don't care about my vote is because I think that once you start saying, okay, and so you should vote for so-and-so, it psychologically puts you on this path as I'm talking about as a writer, as an intellectual, as, as a pundit, whatever you want to say, of trying to defend your vote rather than making the arguments that you want to make. It's a subtle form of sort of intellectual corruption to sort of make your vote central to how you look at things. In my opinion, different people have different opinions. That's fine. It's sort of like, and I've run into this a few times, and I try not to make this mistake, but every now and then I'll make predictions, right? And the problem with predictions, I, you can feel it in real time. I'm not alone on this. If you make a prediction, particularly if you make a bold prediction and, you, and, 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 and say, you know, mark it down, you start looking for reassurances that your prediction is going to be right. You start trying to make your prediction, you, you start trying to help your prediction become reality. 
And this is what I was getting at about like this, 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 you know, hypothetical of if, what if everybody all of a sudden started listening to you, how would that change your writing? If you think about things as your vote, it's not that thinking about your vote is wrong. It's perfectly right. It's part of citizenship. It's part of civic participation. That's fine. When I say I don't care about my vote in the context of these arguments is that what people are trying to do to me when they say, okay, well, how are you going to vote? Is what they're trying to do is say, if I vote one way, that reveals that, oh, I'm just for the other team. And if I say I'm going to vote for my team, then they say, well, then you really don't think that these objections are all that important. And I find it that it's just as a matter of argumentation, as a matter of debate, as a matter of thinking through one's positions on things, to obsess about how you're going to vote is a huge distraction. It's a huge cul-de-sac. It's a trap in a lot of ways where you fall into the terms of the debate that the people who hate your position want you to fall into. And since I've never lived anywhere where my vote matters, um, I'm not saying don't vote. You know, and I have, I have a well-established uh, record about my views about democracy and about voting and, and all that stuff, and I retract none of it. But uh, if you're having an argument about political substance or political principle and someone says but it's a binary choice. How are you going to vote? I get the point that they're trying to make, but what I'm trying to make, the point I'm trying to make isn't reducible to a binary choice argument about voting. It's just an apples and oranges thing. And again, apples and oranges are really similar, but they are different. And I find that this is my sort of my problem with, with, with Tom's position is that he, it felt to me, and again, this isn't, this might be entirely my fault for not articulating these distinctions well enough. I don't know if I'm articulating them now well enough, but Tom kept going back and forth across these lines between how you should vote, how you should think about your vote, who you should vote for, what your actual positions should be, what a good sort of strategy should be about politics in general. And those are just three different things. And they're all, they all have their justifications. They all have their merits, but they, you can get yourself into a mess. And I do it all the time. And it's a very common, you know, problem, but you can get yourself into a mess if you aren't aware or cognizant of, or careful about, being clear about what mode of thinking you're doing at the time. And again, it's like the, the Pence pro-life thing. Pence is a sincere and passionate pro-lifer. I'm sure he doesn't want it to be true that being pro-life is bad for the GOP or has a downside for the GOP or has costs for the GOP. I think he's wrong about that as an analytical matter. And I think that being such a passionate pro-lifer might lead him to think, might lead him to get his analysis wrong. Because for a lot of people, what is good for the GOP has to be all the right things in the same way that the left thinks that what is good for the Democratic Party have to be all the right positions and that there's no downside to taking any given position. A good sort of example of this is, is how that's is wrong is, is campaign finance reform. Because... You know, in the 1990s, the Democratic Party 
took a position on camp campaign finance reform that I don't think was actually in the party's self-interest, but they did it on principle. And the Republican Party took a position on campaign finance reform that wasn't in its self-interest, but was largely on principle. Or you look at Nancy Pelosi with Obamacare. I mean, now it's looking like Obamacare is, is popular. You know, it's, it's sunk in. People have reliance interests on it. I don't, it's a different topic. But she was perfectly happy to have Congress vote for Obamacare knowing that it was going to cost a significant proportion of Democratic seats, including probably their majority. And she wanted to do it anyway. And I think there are real problems with that politically. And I can even make real argument that there are real problems with that philosophically, right? Because it's, there's this tension there between what you're there to do. But if you're a true believer that this was the most important thing to do and it was good for the country, then it's worth taking a hit electorally to do the right thing. And she was willing to make that calculation. Of course, she was willing to gamble with other people's seats, not her own. Still, you know, if you were, if you were a committed progressive, uh, you would say kudos to her. And I just think that this, these distinctions between what is prudentially smart politics, what is partisan smart politics, what is philosophically correct political positions... And what is the truth? These things don't always line up as symmetrical lines in parallel. They're often knots. And everyone has got to figure out how to, uh, how to cut that knot their own way. I tend to like the way I'm trying to cut that knot. I think it, at the very minimum, it works for me. It helps me. I sleep at night pretty well because of these kinds of things, because of the positions I've taken. But there are a lot of people who sincerely believe, and I, I don't think they're entirely wrong, that Trump is such a disaster, such a, uh, uh, an objective threat to the country and to the constitutional order that, you know, just telling the truth as you see it and not hectoring people towards one position or another position is morally irresponsible. They may be right, but that's not the path I've chosen. And I don't think that reducing everything down to this sort of binary thing the way, way Tom did actually helps their cause. I think that you tell a lot of otherwise decent, wrong about Trump, but decent Republicans and conservatives out there that the only way they can be, the only way they can prove that they're actually morally... Uh, ordered and patriotic people is by voting for Joe Biden and the Democrats is an absolutely terrible political strategy. It's such a terrible political strategy, it actually violates the sort of standard of the intellectual to tell the truth as you see it. Because it will not, as a matter of strategy, work, right? I mean, it may be the morally upright thing, you know, if, 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 if God took the form of an advice columnist, that may be the advice he would give. But in, in this world, as a prudential matter, you tell a gazillion otherwise decent, again, wrong on Trump, confused about a lot of things, but not evil people, not would-be you know, stormtroopers, not supporters, not people who want to see the end of democracy or any of that kind of stuff, just people who have been misinformed or have let their passions get the better of them. 
about politics, you tell them that they have to vote for a Democratic president and a Democratic party they detest, or they're not putting the interests of the country first, that strategy is just going to go friggin' nowhere. It may be exactly what Nicole Wallace's audience wants to hear, but as a strategy, it's garbage. I mean, it's just, it just won't work. If I'm not the one saying, let's get into the strategy game, but if you're going to get in the strategy game, as a matter of my own sort of pundit analysis, I think that is a terrible strategy. If you wanted to reassure those voters that they weren't just giving complete license and permission, Cory Bush or Elon Omar or AOC or whoever, one of the smartest things the Democratic Party could do, one of the smartest things that Joe Biden could do is have a bunch of sister soldier moments where he calls out the asininity and the extremism on the left to signal to people in the middle that he's not one of those people. Bill Clinton was good at that. You know, this Frank Forward book that is out, and I got to get Frank on here. I, I've known Frank for 30 years about Biden. You know, Biden caved to uh, the teachers unions, to Randy Weingarten, because he just doesn't have the intestinal fortitude to say no to uh, the teachers unions. Like, Bill Crystal and those guys, that crowd, I think they would be doing themselves, the country, and the Democratic Party a real service by articulating in non-histrionic terms why the Democratic Party should move back to the center as a means of providing a kind of alternative that obviously not hardcore MAGA people or even super rabid Republicans are ever going to vote for, but that will be more attractive to persuadables. The ask, the, 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 the heavy lifting, lifting ask should be, uh, let's put it this way, okay, who are the people who are most convinced that Donald Trump is an existential threat to democracy? Who are the people who are most passionate that he is a would-be dictator and authoritarian and that this next election could actually be a Flight 93 election and yada, 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 right? They're the super committed partisans on the left, right? The hardcore left. Their opposite number who have a similar view if Biden wins I know you had Mike Huckabee say this week that if Trump is barred from, if Trump doesn't win the election because of these criminal trials, he will be, he will, um, this 2024 will be the last election conducted with ballots instead of bullets. The jackasses who actually believe that garbage, they're the equivalent on the right. They're the ones who say if Biden wins this thing, the country's over. The people who think if Trump wins, on the left, the countries, you know, the people on the left who think if Trump wins, the country's over. They're the ones who are most passionately to believe it. They're the ones who wear resist T-shirts and paint their garages with resist and, and all of these kinds of things. Those are the people, as a practical matter, that Biden should be asking more sacrifice from, right? They're the ones who say this election is ultimately about the survival of democracy, well, if you believe that it's about the survival of democracy, you should tolerate a little more centrism and moderation from Joe Biden. If you're going to persuade the people who don't think that democracy is on the line, that it's an existential extinction-level event if, 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 if Trump gets elected, 
Those are the ones you need to use normal politics to persuade to vote for you or just stay home, right? If you take a, if they're otherwise going to be a Trump voter and you convince them, eh, the stakes aren't that high. Um, I'm not going to vote for Biden, but I'm not going to vote for Trump either. That's a win for you, right? And the way you persuade those people is not by telling them they're villains and monsters if they don't vote for it the unreconstructed left-wing agenda of the Democratic Party, the way you persuade them is you persuade them that the Democratic Party isn't an unreconstructed left-wing operation. And that requires sending signals that you are not part of that crowd. And Joe Biden has steadfastly not done that. And so that's my view of the political strategy point, right? And it's similarly, you know, with the MAGA crowd, those people are the ones who scream out their asses all the time about rhinos and about how we have to elect Trump and anybody who doesn't vote for Trump is a rhino. They're not real Republicans and all that kind of crap. But they're also the people who say that if Trump's not the nominee, they won't vote for anybody else. So who's the actual rhino here, right? You're not really a party person if you say it's my nominee or nobody. But that's their position. They're the ones, if you honestly believe that re-electing Biden is going to throw us into a Maoist cultural revolution where anybody who doesn't wear a mask is put into a camp. You're the one who it is incumbent upon to hold your nose a little bit and look for the most electable Republican possible. Right? This was the standard among the intellectual crowd of National Review for years, was this prudential trade-off right, of the most conservative candidate electable. Not the most conservative candidate, the most conservative candidate electable. The problem we have with the GOP today is not only are the most extreme candidates not very conservative, they're also not electable. And yet the Kerry Lakes, the Blake Masters, these guys are like a bad case of herpes. They just won't go away. And we're told that you're not a real Republican, you're not a real conservative unless you're all in for these goofballs and losers. And, and so the distinction that, you know, that should be made is, is like, if you want to, the people who make you a winning coalition, the people who win you election are the least committed to your ideological agenda. And so one of the, one of the most important forces for moderating American politics was the fact that elections were won in the center by picking up the majority of those weakly aligned voters. And so, you know, you would, in the primaries, if you were a Democrat, you would run hard to the left. And if you were in the Republican, you would run hard to the right in the primaries. Not so much to win every hardcore base voter, but to win enough of them that you could add to your more conventional Republicans. Right. George W. H. W. Bush was not the favorite of the hardcore base of the Republican Party in 1988, but he won enough of them in part because this is this has been the pattern. This is the pattern for most of our lives with the Republican Party. What would happen is, do you remember that there used to be this thing about uh, Republicans nominate the guy whose turn it is, right? The next guy in line. And, you, and the way that would usually work is that it was like sort of the guy who came in second in the primaries would get the nomination the next time around. And, you know, so came in second in effect to 
Bush uh, in 92. So in 96, Dole's nominee. George W. Bush kind of messes this up because in effect, I think he wrapped that up. Uh, he got the nomination in part because he was a stand-in for his dad with a big chunk of voters. 2008 comes in second. In 2016, or 2012, he gets the nomination, right? And so the cliche that it was always about the next guy's turn was wrong. Not insofar as it wasn't descriptively accurate, but it, it kind of misunderstood the, the internal dynamics below the surface, right? It, it's like sort of thinking that a duck is being propelled by magnetism because it just looks like it's just sort of being pulled and glided across the water. Um, instead, no, it's just that it's, its feet are moving real fast under the water. The reason why this got the next turn thing was the norm was that the person who came in second essentially kept running for president, knowing that he was going to run again. And he worked assiduously with grassroots groups in New Hampshire and Iowa and other right-wing sort of movement conservative interest groups to get a chunk of their support to reassure them that he was on their side, making promises and all these kinds of things so that when they ran the next time, they had enough base support to add on to their their core support of moderates or, or you know, Midwesterners or whatever to come up with a winning coalition. But then the thing that was the centralizing tendency of, sorry for that long digression on that, but this is one of these things that always bothered me. The centralizing tendency, the stabilizing tendency in our politics was that once you got the nomination, you then ran to the center because you've unified your party, you got the the, the, the got enough of the base that the rest of the base goes along because they're partisans and they want to beat the other team and you've wrapped up everybody else. And so now you get to go into the general and you aim dead center at the median voter, the median gettable voter, the median persuadable voter. And that by definition is going to be a moderating influence because winning coalitions, again, the, the, 80% of the winning coalition are true believers or party pe are true party people, committed party people. But you need that last 20% to be a majority. And so that majority, that majority making 20%, 10%, sometimes 5% has outsized leverage over the positions of the party. And they're easily turned off by extremism. That used to be the norm for both parties. Because of polarization, because of incumbency, it started really with, with house races. Point of vulnerability to getting, for an incumbent to get renominated or reelected was no longer a general election for a lot of them. It was the primary. So your entire, the incentive structure to get reelected has never changed. But the, the means by which you protect your incumbency had moved to primaries, which made these, yes, small donors, most committed, most activist types, uh, much more powerful because once you got the nomination in a district that's 60% Republican, you were pretty much guaranteed to get reelected. So everybody just cared more about getting their nomination, uh, getting the nomination again, not getting primaried than they cared about winning over median voters. And that had an autocatalytic effect that made politics more polarized, made the big sort even more sorty. And that logic and those incentives ineluctably seeped into the presidential process as well. And that's where we are. And so you can see it with Ted Cruz's strategy in 2016 of not wanting to, or Barack Obama's strategy in 2008, right? There was all the, 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 the impulse to move to the center 
disappeared as the data analytics, as the, the, the math of the big sort got clearer. And so what Obama did in 2008 was say, hey, you know, I don't need to make my majority with that 10% of, you know, annoying petite bourgeois centrists and, you know, de facto suburban Republicans. I can make my majority by turning up the game on the base of my party, by expanding the electorate among low propensity voters, minority voters, young voters. If I can get their share of the vote to be greater, then I won't need the more reliable voters in the center. And that's what he did. He just, he, he, his electorate, uh, blacker and younger than anyone thought the electorate was going to be. Um, it was brilliant politics, right? And there's nothing immoral about it. It was a strategy. And it was a strategy made in part possible by changes in the demographics and the sorting and in part by technology. And then that was sort of Ted Cruz's strategy in 2016 was, you know, that there's this hidden, there are these hidden 10 million white, low propensity, low information voters that can be activated, the irony was, was that Ted Cruz basically created the strategy for Donald Trump to get narrowly elected. And now the problem is, is that it's sort of like, you know, when I was talking to Gene Twangy about how technology sort of shapes ideology in a certain way, it shapes your worldview more than people realize. The technology of politics has gotten to the point where the base of the party, because it lives in these echo chambers, um, lives, you know, is very online, has convinced itself that it's both a majority of Americans and a victim of the majority. Its approach to politics is all kinds of distorted. And I think you see this among Democrats as well. I mean, it's funny how a few years ago, all I got was grief from uh, the left about my counter-majoritarian impulses and how, um, you know, my defenses of the electoral college and all these kinds of things. There are people out there who still don't like that stuff about me. But like majoritarianism is becoming a problem for the Democratic Party because the people at the top of the party who control the messaging and the, the positions of the party are at odds with the majority of the American people. And I'm not, I, I know I'm long again, but that's, um, so I'm not gonna get in the weeds on that, but like you look at these polls, the Wall Street Journal poll, the AP Newark poll about how, you know, 65, 75% of Democrats think Biden is too old to be president of the United States. Two-thirds of Americans generally think that. Where's your majoritarianism now, guys? This I could go on and on about how majoritarianism is a intellectually corrupting concept because majoritarianism, much like populism, is amoral. It gives legitimacy in the case of properly conducted elections and then therefore it's, it's good. But as a general proposition, pure democracy is simply the doctrine that says 51% of the people get to pee in the cornflakes of 49% of the people. And that's why I'm much more of a liberal than I am of a Democrat. Doesn't mean I don't want to get rid of, doesn't mean at all I want to get rid of democracy. I just care about it less than I care about liberalism. And as I wrote the other week, the problem is that they're inexorably, ineluctably, I keep using those words and both times I think I used it wrong here, irretrievably linked. You cannot hold on to liberalism for long without democracy. Um, and so you, should, you need to have a healthy democracy to have liberalism. Because without democracy, you cannot hold parties and people accountable. You get elites who become entrenched, who protect themselves. 
and run the economy and the society in general as a self-protection racket. And the only way to prevent that, the only way to prevent bad czars from showing up is by having elections. Orderly, lawful, proper elections, not people storming the Capitol, not temper tantrums, but serious informed elections. And that's why I like democracy, not because it is a guarantee of any good results, but because it is a hedge against a lot of bad results. And that's sort of how I think about my vote, too, just to bring it home. I guess I could keep going, but I'm not going to. Thank you for listening. Uh, next, uh, next time you, well, so I recorded a wonderful conversation. Well, I thought it was wonderful. I hope you think it was wonderful with uh, Megan McArdle. That's going to be the first episode of The Remnant next week. Um, I'm going to record an episode with Scott Lincecum about an exciting thing on Monday. So I was going to say the next time you hear my voice, um, it'll be from the road, but that's not true. The next time you hear my voice, I will be, but I will not be recording from the road until later in the week. Although I might try to do this audio diary thing for the super feed. Um, stay tuned. Uh, anyway, with that, thanks for listening. Um, I hope I was somewhat clear about some of the stuff I was talking about. I cannot remember now. And um, I'll see you next time.